Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. So this week it's Full House, me, Dan, Jeff and Alex, uh, joined by Rufus Grantham, returning guest, a really interesting figure in the scene. He's one of the originators of Net Zero Neighbourhoods and formerly working at Bankers Without Boundaries. He set up a consultancy that's championing a place-based approach to catalyzing or instigating large-scale retrofit. That's place-based as opposed to a uh, finance-based. So Rufus has been working in the sector since he left finance. He used to be a banker for about three, four years. I can't remember. I can't be bothered going back to listen. What's interesting is having been a finance-first person, he's now looking to or seeking to or he's seen the opportunity to use community as the law to bring in the pension fund's slow money. So he's not chasing the finance first. He's recognised that you need to create the opportunity. And if you create the opportunity, the finance money will follow. It's brilliant. He's doing loads of interesting things. He's very keen on networking, finding all the right people. So if any of this that you hear today uh, interests you, give him a shout. I'm sure he'll be interested in hearing from you. I won't belabor the point any further. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Cheers. All right, well, uh, thank you for joining us today, Rufus. So, returning guest, you've made two appearances, I think, so far. Like, no, no this you... is my second. This is my second. You did one with Duncan. I'm sure there are two episodes with you, because you're one of the only... Uh, it's you and Peter Rickaby that get listened to from two, the episodes back in 2001, and hardly any of the others... 2001. 2001, 2000, yeah, 2001, yeah. Um, <laughs> were podcasts even a thing in 2001? I don't think so, no. Space oddity. Yeah, not long after. I think maybe 2005 they started. I think I've only done one, I'm pretty sure. You did one I with think you, he would know, Dan. And then don't, there was... This, you call this like podsplaining, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, was a, there was a recording of your presentation of the old funding model, which I think Duncan put out as a podcast. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Probably explains too. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. it was a monologue though. That wasn't a. I, I wasn't a podcast. <laughs> you appeared in the feed, but yeah, like people, people have trawled back through our storied history of episodes, and they return to those ones quite frequently. I mean, they never listened to the one that Alex and I did before we joined. Yeah, that's very sad. Well, I'll go back yeah. and listen. It's absolute gold, Dan. Just say it. It's absolute gold. I mean, I can't remember. <laughs> I repeat myself so frequently that contemporary listeners who never listened back then, they've probably heard it all anyway. Um, <laughs> I think maybe someone did go back to it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So we invite you along today to tell us all about what you're up to now, because finance is a perennial issue. We were just chatting with some clients about the, the head-scratching aspect. You know what needs to be done? How can you get the money to do it? Well, as I said, that's the easy bit, isn't it? <laughs> so you said. <laughs> so yeah, do you want to tell us about your? Uh, give us a bit of a background about your new endeavour. So I've spent the last three and a half years looking at this space and looking at finance and doing that from an organisation that was just about finance. You know, I'd say just about finance is an important thing, but but a lot of finance people looking at lots of different problems that needed finance applying to them. But I found myself working much more closely with people from other organizations who were 
citizen engagement people or governance people or technical people because in the problem that i'm looking at that's that's it's that intersectionality between those different things that's really important and so that's essentially what we've what we've set up so living places is going to have a range of different disciplines in it we are two people today we'll be five next month um, i don't think we ever want to get bigger than about 12 15 things start becoming harder when you when you get to that point and yeah you know, a second principle is to be top heavy this is a space where we don't know the answers we need people with lots of experience to come to it rather than a classic consulting model where you you staff it with lots of uh, lots of associates and just focus on one thing so we're only looking at place based decarbonization so we will have capability across governance technical engagement finance risk etc but so two other sort of principles despite having having people who sit across that spectrum what we're explicitly not saying is you know we can turn up work with our local authority and we can do everything this has to be collaborative so the idea is we still want to be in consortia working with my old organization for example on the finance side or a governance focused organization or a technical organization but by having a foot in all the camps we can kind of draw it together and, and act a, as a convening role and then the final principle is to be not-for-profit so we're setting up explicitly as a not-for-profit one of the challenges of consulting i think generally or, or anyway impact-driven consulting is you have a tension between the work that you think is going to be strategic and innovative and is going to help unlock things and the work that pays the bills and often the work that's available and the people who've got money to pay for stuff aren't necessarily wanting to do the things you want to do and so you end up getting torn between the two and so i'm i'm working on trying to put a foundational funding structure in as well so that we can effectively pre-fund some projects where the the customer can't can't do that work so i've been speaking for example to one local authority really interesting potential project uh, some interesting assets place-based model really could do with some business case development around that but they have no funding stripped to the bone from finance perspective if we could turn up and say well you know this piece of work will cost you x but don't worry it will cost you nothing because we can take that out of the foundational uh, piece it will allow us to do the right work i guess strategically important work so yeah it's 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 pretty exciting it's moved we're in we today is the start of week six we've got six pieces of work already as I said five people by next month a few other people would like to join there's a bit of a cash flow management piece of how you manage the working capital of all, all of that but having some useful conversations there it's it's super exciting it, it, honestly the the response has been humbling and staggering it's, it's been kind of amazing which is great and, and I think you know I'm a, I'm an unashamedly massive believer that place-based is is going to be the way that we unlock this problem. It's not going to be house by house. We have to have a, a place-based model. It's super complicated doing that. There are lots of intersecting disciplines that need to be worked through. And to do that, I, I put put on our website, no more, no more reports. We need to do stuff. We need to actually start designing place-based schemes putting capital to work, seeing what works, what doesn't work, iterating, doing it again, and that's going to need funding. And so the two, the two core t 
types of projects that that I would like us to be doing are either working with a uh, the owner of a potential demonstrator. So that could be a local authority, it could be an RSL. We've got one of each of those in our in our initial um, list. I'm I'm hoping to be working with your previous guests on the last podcast. Or oh, and or so that's the kind of bottom up creating demonstrators. I think what it really needs, though, is then some top down, whether that's national or regional government organisations, devolved governments, combined authorities, creating a programme where they have a cohort of places working together in, you know, and learning from each other and running that as a coordinated programme. Those are the two things that we, we, we really want to get into. I mean, it sounds great, like straight off the bat. Like it sounds particularly good, like, it isn't a great surprise that you found yourself in such a, a privileged position right now with regard to your new venture, because I mean you're one of the the originators of the net zero neighborhoods uh concept. Yeah. Like the 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 formalized version rather than just like a bunch of words thrown together. You've done the reports that demonstrate the viability of this with specific reference to creating things that are attractive to capital. So you can get the money to make the thing happen. What's most interesting is that you say, as you just did, and we've discussed in other conversations, putting the money to work is the easy part. It's finding the places to put the money to work. That's the tough bit. I think I, I, I'd qualify that slightly. I think so. The, the the first piece I wrote about this was over Christmas 2020, and we I, we published it still on the BWB website um in january 21 which was called green neighbors as a service terrible name um i've got issues with net zero neighborhoods as a name as well because you're not actually going to get to net zero it's contribution towards net zero but, but that's a different discussion <laughs> um, i mean name is the problem all over the place net zero is a policy and bankers without boundaries sounds like a fetish organization as much as a finance <laughs> organization well as i said bankers should have boundaries but anyway <laughs> um yeah but the, I guess the, the, when that idea came together, you know, and you got to remember, I have no background in public sector or built environment or real estate or anything pre 2020. I'm just a finance guy who understands numbers and returns and investment type stuff. So, which I think is actually an advantage because you come at a completely blank page, first principle kind of thinking. But the initial or my initial sort of catalyst for thinking of that idea was purely about the funding it was about if you want to get it you know retrofit is a terrible return profile for individual people because it's such a long payback but it's a great return profile for pension funds and so the whole starting point of thinking of a neighborhood was just to get enough houses to get a big enough investment proposal that you could talk to a pension fund because they're not going to talk they're not going to talk to you about a you know, forty-five thousand pound retrofit number twenty-three. You've got to have tens, tens, ideally hundreds of millions of size. And so, I think when I started with this, I was very dogmatic about, you know, it's all about the finance and this is the model and it's the only model that will work and you know everything else is rubbish. Never quite said that, but there was that sort of sense. And that I think I've gone complete complete circle on that over the last two or three years. If you have an investable model that will pay long-term stable returns, there is a huge amount of money that wants to invest in that. And we've spoken to lots of pension funds and insurance companies who all say, if if you build it, you know, we will come essentially, which is why I say I think raising the money is the easy bit. The difficult bit is having the project. I think what I've come to believe now is the most 
difficult part of getting a project is getting enough people who live near each other to say yes we're up for it so it's having that um what's the narrative um i, I put a piece on our on our website over the weekend called what's in a story or what's in the story and it, it's about if we start knocking on doors and talking about heat pumps and net zero and the climate and the environment forget it it's not that's not going to work we have to be thinking about what what motivates people in communities to do something which is fundamentally quite disruptive and and not not great and and you've got to be thinking about that in the context of a cost of living crisis in the context of people's lived experience right what what are the things that are going to and that's why we've called the, the the company living places because the narrative has to be about those sort of things it's got to be about poverty access to green space social fabric uh, community infrastructure, the things that make the places we live and work in, where decarbonisation and net zero is just a happy byproduct of of that process. I don't. I, I, if we don't get that narrative right, it's not going to work. And so the people piece is really important. Now, clearly, finance plays into that. Um, if you're asking, in my view, any model that proposes to scale is asking individual homeowners or tenants to <coughs> take on debt in some form either individually or on, or property linked is not going to be the scaled answer it, it those those types of products i think is really important for early adopters and for stimulating the market getting the supply chain moving but if we want 20 odd 25 million properties in the uk to go through what's quite a significant transition that cannot be a debt driven product from the individual perspective so you need a funding vehicle where you can put the debt basically shield the the households from that so that feeds into that narrative but it isn't what the narrative is about the narrative has to be about if we bring money to the table for your community and give you agency about how to spend it you can Im improve the place that you live in the ways that you as a community want and and components of that will include things like comfort and air quality and health which we know are heavily linked to the retrofit piece and that's the way to deliver it but it might include things like you know the bit of curb that trips people up or the the alleyway around the back that's not got you know not well lit at night those sort of things and they're going to vary place by place um, and there'll be multiple things within a place that different subsets of the community care about and it's finding a a model that allows communities to come together make those decisions make those suggestions and support each other's ideas and come up with you know what what collectively would we like to do so if you, I think if you've got a collective mechanism and you can you can start getting into how you might apply kind of gamification principles to that, where if I don't sign up, then the kids down the street aren't going to get access to the thing that they want. And there's a bit of a kind of maybe it's collective guilt. I don't know whether that's the right phrase, but 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 changing the dynamic of why people are making decisions. Well, there's something interesting in the what's the broadband scheme that you've used as a reference point when we were talking about this broadband in the rural north that's it yeah like not everyone needs to buy in immediately you need a no. critical mass no exactly what why why do place-based and there's various reasons and the, the, you know, the first reason was where i started which is aggregation of funding so you can talk to patient capital fine the second one, which I don't think has really been explored very much at all, is economies of scale. You know, we know there's huge inflation coming through, has been coming through in retrofit costs. It's just more expensive to do now, and that's a supply chain issue, and clearly you're going to have to go through that. 
but there's also massive inefficiency in those prices. So I think Richard, on your last podcast, quoted me, but didn't didn't give me credit for the for the um, <laughs> for the kind of time that goes into a heat pump installation in terms of manufacture versus install and sales. And actually, that came from a heat pump manufacturer that I spoke to. In case you can't remember the statistic that Richard in the last episode made reference to, R- Richard or River Clyde Arms, he said that 34 hours of labour go into a heat pump. Six of those are involved in manufacture, and 28 of those are involved in sales, presumably excluding R&D. I just thought it was important to be clear. I'll let you get back to it now. Um, so if you've got that amount of time that is sitting down and having cups of tea and biscuits and explaining how it works and what it will do and getting people to the point of signing to take it, if you can change that engagement away from one-to-one to one-to-many, when you install, you know, if you think about a classic installer, you get in a white van, you drive from point A to point B, install the heat pump, drive back to the depot, drive to somewhere else. If you drive to one place, as, as one installer put it, um, you know, the number of houses within walking distance of a portal, then you've got massive economies of installation. If you can do design economies, so you have shared infrastructure, the kind of Kenza heat the street type, type model of, of shared ground source arrays, you're bringing down the unit cost, cost per property. And we know one of the problems here is it's massively expensive and the, the savings aren't great. The average energy bill is just over £2,000 now. So even if you really aggressively reduce that bill, you maybe get a £1,500 saving. If you're having to put £45,000, £50,000 in to deliver that, that's a 30, 40 year payback before you look at inflation, before you look at cost of capital, before you look at replacement of all those assets that are going to break. So the, the payback's bad one way to we can't make well, one way to change it would be to jack up electricity and gas prices but that's probably not a very good idea because then you could save more against it but the other way is bring the cost down so economies of scale are, are hugely important then the third is i think the ability to create a regenerative narrative which is probably totally the wrong phrase but this point about it being about making places better places to live as opposed to about being decarbonization you can do that if you've got proximity between what you're doing because if you commit to upgrade the community center you know all the people in the in the walking distance of that benefit from that and that becomes an incentive because it's it's bundled in as part of the project if you create a, a mini park in a in a you know disused bit of land that again similar sort of thing so you need that proximity of, of properties but you don't need 100% sign up, which we're obviously never going to get. You've just got to get enough sign up to unlock some of those economies of scale and be able to deliver it. And you know the, the broadband for the rural north you mentioned, you know they would they would see a sign up rate, and then the people who said no either would move away and someone else would come in who was more positive, or would see you know the sort of over the garden fence conversation with neighbours was like, oh actually it does seem like quite a good idea. How do I sign up now? And then you do a second wave, and you kind of have to come back to it. But it, you know, it's ability to scale this. And I think I think the final bit is, is agency to do this work because we're talking about a heroic transition of energy systems, heating systems, transport systems linked into it, behavior change. This is this is massive, massive stuff. You know, if, if you if you buy into 40, 50,000 pounds per property, you're talking hundreds of billions, if not a trillion, of, of capital needs to be spent thinking we can deliver really systemic change with 28 million householders making individual decisions 
I think is not it's not going to happen, right? So if you can start, if you put yourself in the position of a a city council, if you could start to break your geography out into pockets of call it a thousand homes each and start to kind of kind of create a, a program, how how that's gonna as a wave over 10, 15 years, how you're going to move around the city and, and try and deliver that. It's creating agency at local government level to actually deliver the net zero targets that they've that their politicians have committed them to, which they need to do, right? And if you take one of those like one thousand home pockets, or even if you take it into the individual homeowner or or or, or occupant, or whatever level, how does this work? And ha- I mean, uh, what's their experience of this? Um, how how does the pension fund or whoever's financing this? get paid you know uh, and what for and how does it how does it differ depending on different people needing different things or wanting different things so lots of good questions some of which i know the answer to some of which i don't yet and and that's why we need to do in order to learn in in essence i, I was talking to joe wheeler at the uk gbc about our, our ideas she said oh so this this is the um the Pays You Save report we wrote in 2008. I was like, oh, I haven't read that. I probably should. Yeah. And, and yeah, it was. We came to similar, not, not exactly the same conclusion, but similar conclusions. I think at that point, it was more of a at an individual level, whereas we're looking at a, at a collective. But it's a, it's a Pays You Save, collective Pays You Save scheme. So you, you have a funding vehicle that funds the work um, that is a mix, a blend of public capital, private capital, and outcome buying capital. And I'll come back to that last bit and t- talk about that a little bit later. Um, that pays for this. So there's no upfront spend from anyone who lives there, unless they want to opt in, which yeah, would be, I think you've got to give choices, different financing choices. You could you could do a green mortgage if you've got the cash in the attic, you could pay for it, or you could sign up to the collective scheme. And you know, just to put some rough numbers, if if current energy bill is just over two thousand pounds, if through a combination of fabric, heat pump, and solar battery, you can bring the net bill down to let's say 500, that might be a bit ambitious, but let's say you've created a 1500 pound saving for that resident. So you split it. Um, maybe the resident gets a 300 pound saving, 15% off the original bill, mm-hmm. and you're collecting 1200 pounds into that funding vehicle as an annuity income stream. From that, you'd need to factor in a bit of non-payment. Not everyone pays their bills. You'd factor in a little bit of operational cost. The biggest thing you need to factor in is the fact you've got uh, an installed asset base that is going to break over the funding period. Everything is going to have to be replaced at least once. So you need to put some money aside each uh, year into a asset maintenance replacement fund, which we've, we've modelled out and it, we're getting sort of four, four to five hundred pounds per per property per year, sort of building up that fund for when the heat pump needs replacing, et cetera. But it leaves you with a chunk of money left. And that can be used to repay debt that you put in that that funding vehicle. So the debt sits there, not on the household, not on the property. Um, and there's, there's an interesting um, conclusion that comes out of that. Actually, before I go to that, so, so the mechanism, you obviously need a way to uh, get a payment out of the out of the householder, and there are a number of different ways you could do that. The Green New Deal legislation does it, it probably needs a bit of secondary legislation tweaking, but it, it does it's set up to allow you to put effectively a comfort fee on the utility bill. You could run it through an ESCO type model where it's payment for the solar generation. Um, you could have a combination of the two, 
but you, you're looking for a way to capture that that twelve hundred pounds in this in this case, and legally, that means creating a periodic payment obligation um, rather than a charge on the property. So you know, you know, this is not necessarily the best analogy just because of the branding. But if you buy a property and live in a property, you have to pay council tax. Now that doesn't put a debt on your property. It's not taken into account when you're raising a mortgage. Except it is in your in your kind of cash flow, your affordability, and it's that it's that same sort of structure where there's no recourse to the property and therefore no financial charge, but there is a requirement to pay, and that re- that requirement stays when you move out and someone else moves in. So it's it it sort of perpetuates. It's a, um, it's an interesting point because um, my ears pricked up when you mentioned pay, as you say, because I I won an award actually, a green award in two thousand and nine or ten i can't remember uh for advocating for pay as you save in ireland um i've been talking to these fellas in vermont uh harlan lockman is the guy whose name springs to mind who've been uh, pitching this idea around the states uh at the time um and uh i ireland being a small country uh it at times can be possible to gain access to government ministers even, you know, without the layers of, of bureaucracy that you might face in the UK. That's why I like Scotland, for, it's similar. Yeah, for better or for worse, you know, because uh, obviously that, <laughs> that, 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 that's a, a double-edged sword depending on who's talking to them. Um, but I... I lobby anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did a lot of unpaid lobbying. I still do. Uh, but um, uh, I was... I chaired the Green Party's Policy Committee on Buildings at the time when they were in government from uh, from 2007 to 2011 in coalition government. And they renewed their vows with Fianna Fáil, the the, the main government party at the time, in 2009. And I put some proposals together, including uh, a pay-as-you-save proposal. And um, it got into the renewed programme for government, but it was put in backwards. It was turned into save-as-you-pay um uh, because of some concern um that uh that the government had that uh that, that the term was trademarked i think and it was given to one official in the department of energy uh to to the fellow who was responsible the principal officer in the department who was responsible for um for delivering uh the government's targets bear in mind we're a country of five million people we're a few a good bit, good bit smaller then but we had a target to upgrade one million homes by 2020 okay you know which is that you know more than half of our our stock um and i remember sinjin o'connor was the official in question i remember him being asked at one meeting uh what resources he had uh to deliver this and he said uh, a third of me <laughs> so um they were chronically under-resourced um and just kind of died in the water i mean it was it, it got into the program for government the greens in fairness you know they were they were a lot more naive i suppose or greener themselves when they were in government that time um so uh i think if they you know if they were working on a proposal like that now they would be much more bullish uh, uh but it hasn't shown up uh yet uh it's, it's not it's not uh, i don't think it's in the program for government now that we get the greens are back in so yeah, it's an interesting idea. Uh, it'd be really interesting to know why it hasn't happened yet, though, at scale. Um, one one of the things that was attractive about this, but was was, and just to bring back to what you were talking about, Rufus, was that um, my understanding was the banks get very nervous if you start talking about 
putting a lien on a property. Um, so if you attach the debt to the property, it becomes a real problem. Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's fund. There's sort of three. Well, you either pay for this out of the taxpayers' money. You know, we just publicly fund it, and and that's not. I don't actually as stupid as it. So, I mean, obviously, it's not going to happen. I'm not that naive, but I think you can <laughs> make a business case for that in terms of job creation, healthcare benefits. You know, you can you can argue, I think, quite strongly that there'll be a return yeah. for a society effectively um, well, by by spending that. That's why people keep calling it the Green New Deal. Like there was once a New Deal, and it was exactly that, and it was yeah. immensely successful wherever it was deployed. Yeah, it yeah. has a track record. Absolutely. So, I mean, but yeah, let's 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 not kid ourselves. That's not going to happen. <laughs> um, so, you can either put the debt on individuals, and then we get into this sort of whole, I think, difficult argument about you know the reason you retrofit your house is because the value of the house will go up. And there is some emerging evidence that if you improve the EPC at the moment, your the value of your property will go up. But I I don't buy that argument at all because a there's a zero sum game. Are we really saying that the entire housing stock of the UK should go up, you know, 50, 60 grand because we're going to spend a load of money on it? It do- doesn't make economic sense. We're basically putting the cost of housing, the cost of owning a house has just gone up, right? We all, everyone who owns a house is staring at a 50 grand liability to, to upgrade. That can't make properties worth more. It just, the, the, that's economic argument doesn't work. And then from a moral perspective, you know, there are 20 people viewing every rental in London at the moment. The, the the housing market housing is so unaffordable and you know there's a lot of talk about if you're if you've got epc deal below you won't be able to rent your property that seems like a sensible incentive so a whole load of of small landlords who've got a second property are staring at well i'm gonna to have to now retrofit the house and i haven't got access to the money to do that so i'm going to sell the house so you get a massive reduction i think there's been a 40 percent reduction of rental properties in london over the last four years so you get the 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 flip side of that policy will be huge rent increases because supply and demand go out out of whack and you know at the moment young people can't afford to buy a house soon they won't be able to afford to rent one either and and, you know that's that so anything that's based on housing value i find a very difficult argument i think that if you think through the implications of that argument it gets very difficult very quickly so you've either got to put the loan on the individual and we know that if you borrow £50,000 at current mortgage rate, you will pay just over £2,000 a year of repayment. You'll pay about £52,000 back over the course of 25 years. The average energy bill is £2,000. So you'd have to eliminate the energy bill to be in the same financial position, which obviously you're not going to be able to do. So retrofitting will make you poorer. Your mortgage costs will be greater than your energy saving. And that's because the mortgage paybacks, twenty. if we had you know, 80-year mortgages, then that might work. But the average UK homeowner is 56. So if they pay off their mortgage when they're, what, 136, that's, you know, that that's not going to work either. Or you can put it on the property. And that is that is that is one proposed solution is that if I put it on the property, then when I leave, when I sell, the debt sits with the property and it can just sit there through multiple owners being paid off over time. And, you know, there is there is definitely something to that. But if I'm a, if I'm a current mortgage lender against that property, that is the security for my mortgage. And someone else comes along and says, we're sticking another £50,000 of debt on it. You're going to say no. Well, yes, that's fine after I'm paid back. And then you get into a wrangle about where people sit on the on the repayment. And I think also psychologically for a lot of homeowners, the idea of putting a slightly weird, complicated debt on their property 
what's that going to do when I come to sell it? Am I going to be able to sell it? They're going to buy the one next door. That so I, again, I, I don't. I, I think these things are all worth exploring. But I think if you can avoid debt and have the debt sit in the funding vehicle and then just have a payment obligation, effectively a comfort fee, um, you, you get past some of those those issues. But it's complicated to do and you, you need to do it at scale. So which is why I don't think it's 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 happened yet. I want to go back to the kind of, you know, the the, the money. If you've got this said you had this twelve hundred pound saving that you were collecting, you use some of it to um to pay for the maintenance of the assets, it leaves you with maybe seven, eight hundred pounds left. What you can't do, so that that's an annual income, right? And so you could use that annual income to repay debt. So you can capitalize it into debt. And, and the maths that we've done suggests for the average house, you might be able to raise 20 to 25,000 pounds with that. But you can't raise money against the whole amount. So if, if, if my funding vehicle is getting a hundred pounds in every year, I can't go to someone and say, I want to borrow an amount of money that's going to require me to pay you £100 back each year. Because what if next year my income goes down to 99 I default on the loan. I can't repay it back. So you'd only be able to borrow against a portion of it. So you might borrow, uh, borrow a loan that requires you to pay 80 back each year. And the person lending says, OK, you've got 100 coming in. You owe me 80 So there's a nice sort of buffer. There's a, there's a um, It de-risks me effectively. If the income goes down a bit, you can still afford to pay the the AT back to me. In finance terms, that's creating an equity layer in the funding structure. And that um, presents a really interesting question, which is who owns that equity layer? Because if if we're right, and it is 100 income each year, every year you pay your 80 of debt repayment back from the funding vehicle, but you've got 20 of value that, that sits there and accumulates each year um, and builds up value in that fund. So there then comes a question of, well, who owns that value? And then if you think forward to the end of the funding period, you pay your last 800 or your last 80, sorry, you pay the debt off. You've now got a set of embedded assets in a, in a community that are providing heat and power to that community. That community are paying into that funding vehicle and there's now no debt cost to pay. So that, that funding vehicle becomes super profitable overnight. Who owns that? And I think there's a really important question here because the default answer to that if we don't think about it will it will end up in private sector hands and you'll be effectively stealth privatizing local energy assets and you know i think i don't have to, i don't think it's a political statement to say it's not worked out that well with water companies over the last few years so but i actually think you can flip that around i think there's a real really interesting opportunity around that which is the obvious alternative answer is you give the community the ownership of that. And so thinking about structures that allow democratic decision-making across a community of people about what to do with that value, do you create an extra rebate back on the energy bill and you make your energy bill cheaper? Do you create a fund that could give bursaries to the children in that um, neighbourhood when they go to university? Do you um, uh, support small businesses that are providing services into that community? Do you subsidise the local shop? To, you know, there's there's all sorts of things you could do with it. And so when we talk about the regenerative narrative before, there's a narrative here about we're bringing money to your community, your energy bills will go down, your house will be more comfortable, you get some agency about designing the things that are going to be done between the houses, trees or a community centre, EV charging places, you know, whatever it might be. Plus, you're going to take ownership as a community effectively of an income stream that you can then use to 
generate wealth and opportunity within your that becomes a really interesting narrative i think and we haven't mentioned heat pumps once or carbon or anything right that just quietly happens in the background this is the key like it's making the case without referring to climate because yeah. as we discussed with kieran Koff, like people have been making climate arguments for decades and look where we are <laughs> well put it put it this way by the time the climate argument is strong enough to convince enough people to do it, it'll be too late. Yeah. And if you're talking fuel poverty, I mean, poverty is the issue there. And it costs an awful lot of money to get this stuff done. So if you can change the terms of the conversation to community benefit, like even before you get into this, the community engagement stuff, like we'd all prefer to live in, nearly all of us would prefer to live in actual communities rather than dwellings which are placed next to one another. Like there is such a thing as society, whether you like it or not. Social fabric, yeah. Social infrastructure, community infrastructure, to- totally. And I think, uh, yeah, what, I'm I'm an optimist by choice. That's kind of that's one of my sort of stock phrases. But I think you have to be. But I think when you think about rather than going, oh god, this net zero thing is so hard, it is an opportunity to deploy a large amount of capital into communities and have a really positive impact potentially if we get it right. But it's got to be thought about systemically and I, I one of the things i've found frustrating in the public sector um or engaging with the public sector at, at a national level as opposed to local government i think i came into the private sector with the sort of usual view of i'm sure sure local government officials are rubbish they're some of the most impressive people i've met and they're always they, <laughs> they usually are doing eight jobs at the same time you know a third of me it's usually an eighth of me doing this and eighth doing that but obviously you know well underfunded but when you look at the way this sort of stuff, particularly around innovation, tends to be funded, it, it's, it's nearly always on a competitive basis. So we'll put out a funding call. You're looking for a, you end up with a whole range of interesting, quirky, not so good, good ideas bubbling up from different authorities. A selection are picked through some sort of um, selection process. And you've got this kind of ragbag collection of different projects. And, you know, that can be quite a good way of uh, idea generation, but it's not a very good way of testing a hypothesis. And and what I'd really like to see from central government is that here's a hypothesis of something that might work. Now let's find some places and some projects to test that hypothesis out. And I think that's what we need around place-based. And and to be fair, with um, talk with the the team at at, at Desnes, um, the new department quite a lot, I think that thinking is, is is starting to percolate through and i think i'm I'm, you know optimistic about about where that might go you tell us a bit more about your or what you've learned or your experience about community buying because i'm really interested in that side as you said it's about the people um which obviously for us resonates a lot and we've talked about these sort of very very interesting and practical aspects however simple or complicated they are but actually at the end of the day they are quite uh i think quite complex for the everyday person. So I'm sure you must have done already over over the years some some form of research or just even by just doing what you're doing, found out what sort of or do you know what to ex- you're going to be finding a sort of resistance or embracing of this this concept? Very good question. And I, I I guess it's one one reason of setting up a new organization is so, so I'm I'm an ex-banker, therefore I'm a finance guy. I actually spent most of my finance career running a department of 100 people. And that was basically an HR job. It was I did a psychology degree, so it's it much more about the people than it was about complex, complex complex finance. And so, 
by I, I'm interested on a personal level, I'm interested in diversifying across the different pieces. It's the intersectionality that's that's really interesting here, I think. I don't think there has been enough comprehensive research in that topic, but there's a lot of anecdotal stuff. And I guess A, the take up is poor. So talking to someone a while back uh, who ran a project where there were 250 homes, private ownership homes were offered a fully paid 65,000 pound retrofit, you know, very significant energy bill reduction potential, and only 150 said yes. So 100 people turned down 65 grand. And the, the reasons were ranged from some, you know, under, you know, my daughter's getting married in three months time. I don't, I can't, I don't want the hassle essentially right now to, I'm worried about the cat. I've just bought some pot plants. The scaffolding will, will shade them and, and they'll die. You know, it's like, we'll set aside 50 quid for some more pot plants. You know, that's not, um, so the, but, but, you know, laughing aside, this is massively disruptive. You're asking, you're asking people to open their front door let in a predominantly male workforce in the construction industry, which is another problem, into their home to smash stuff up. You know, is it going to work? I don't know what a heat pump is. I don't understand it. It, it. This is really difficult stuff. And I think that most of the evidence I've seen around that narrative and take up has been in situations where people are, the the the, the uh, commentary when the door is knocked on is, We'd like to decarbonize your home. We want to put in a heat pump. We want to put some more insulation in. And I think you've lost people at that point already. And I haven't seen anything that has, that has talked on a much more holistic basis. I think some have quite successfully tapped into, do you realize your internal air quality isn't very good because you're burning gas and there are particulates and actually that's not good for your kids or, you know, the comfort argument. And I think those do resonate. But it's, I don't just don't think we've been pitching the right the right story there's a yeah. um one of the officers at manchester city council has has um is about to publish some research um that she did as part of her uh master's she's been doing part-time exactly on this she's been looking at what what things would motivate people to do this um which i've, I've sort of seen bits and pieces of it looks really interesting i think that comes out in, in a month or a month or so it's and it's it's not just about the story that the, the pick the picture we paint of this is it it's about uh for instance Getting the industry to change how it, how it, uh, what its offer is and how, how it offers its services. You know, I can think of a few exceptions I know of companies who have taken an impressive approach to thinking about the, the process of dealing with them and their site operatives or whatever. Uh, the whole process of, of, of getting works done from a customer perspective. I remember one window company who, uh, had a, fellow from a quite a senior uh, kind of retail position employ and they they would do things like um simple stuff like uh like uh, they got a, a fellow who was heading for retirement in their business um, a salesman and uh, they'd employ him to randomly basically call in on on customers afterwards just to just to just to have the cup of tea with them and find out how it was going how was the process you know get that kind of feedback in in, in place uh, and and use that information to try and rethink uh what can be a very rough and ready uh service you know uh and and and, and uh, uh with, with you know to to, to give customers a yeah, uh, just a better experience of the whole thing you know oh man that's a the customer feedback part there like that's something that's emitted in nearly all industries. It's emitted in nearly every industry I've ever worked in, like yeah. bar none. 
And what really tickles me about, particularly using that uh, northern rural broadband paradigm, so it's a phased service. So you know what your critical mass is. You advertise it. Some people will buy it immediately and others will go broadband. That's what that Jeremy Corbyn said. I'm not having that in my house. Mm. And like eventually it will get rolled out in their village and then it will become a fixture of the village. And those people will realise, why have I got broadband? And, uh, you know, it's a long time since 2019, so they might have forgotten. Um, And gradually, because they experience the service vicariously and they realise they're missing out, but they can still join in. They don't lose face. They don't lose the opportunity. The critical mass and economies of scale have already been baked in. And more importantly, with a service like retrofit they learn what it actually entails from their neighbors and their peers already so they're the complaints that will ripple through the village shop which may have been funded by the scheme or uh, subsidized by the scheme will be telling will be setting expectations for what happens during the process and what the benefits are at the the end of the process and in itself that will begin to create a feedback loop which hones what the service in service is rather and allows people to to home in on like the most viable models like the most viable village or small town or uh typology of building or geography you know like it could be that you develop a model for heat recovery from water that fuels like so flowing water like uh there are loads of mill towns with ponds and rivers like perfect there are loads of like what's happening in river clyde they have the whole of the the river Clyde there. Yeah, like, yeah. like there's so much opportunity, and elsewhere, you know, people avail of though. Anyway, yeah. But think on the on the customer journey thing, I mean, you're you're totally right, and it's um, you know, I, I, a personal anecdote. My mum um got a call from her local council saying we've got some hardcore lad funding. Not sure which it was. Um, we can insulate your your loft, and so they sent two lads round who turned up with a load of loft insulation, realised there was stuff in the loft, turned around and left because they've got boxes in the loft. And my mum's 81 and she wasn't going to nip up a ladder and, and, and empty it out. So you know, if you're doing this at a whole neighbourhood, you could start putting in some enabling infrastructure. Drop a drop a, um, uh, like a storage container, have a group of burly people who can come in clear someone's loft, lock it in the storage container. You know it's secure. They do your loft. You don't have to worry about it getting wet, and they take it back. You know, those sort of pinch points in the process, you could manage into it because it's effectively a shared cost across hundreds of homes, and therefore it's affordable. And I think the other problem with the customer experience, and this, you know, the word we haven't used yet is trust. There are so many – part of the problem with this whole thing is people. That's part of the problem with most things I, I t- generally find. But, you know, if you think about what's happened, what happened over the last year or two with you've had battery and solar panel costs continuing to come down and then you had massive inflation of electricity cost. Clearly, the return on doing solar solar battery install on a home went through the roof or the payback period shrunk to almost nothing. And so suddenly you get all these firms turning around saying, you know, for just just 10 grand, I can install what is actually a £4,000 system, and you're going to get payback in eight years. Actually, the payback's two years, 
and we're ripping you off massively but it looks like a good deal no you know based on what or i think your favorite the, the people with the spray insulation in the lofts you know, oh, yeah. these, these, these are con artists right and presumably not all of them no but there are a lot of them are just misguided but that's yeah. what, <laughs> at, at best if you're thinking about so, solar storage if someone's actually offering a genuinely competitive offer where they're making a a reasonable return themselves as the designer installer but they, they're giving most of the value to the householder I, I mean i haven't seen them yet but let's say they exist you're still cherry picking the one bit of the retrofit that's actually got decent returns mm. and not using it to fund the heat pump which has negative returns and and that's just that's just, just stupid from a, a, a design perspective so you need to be bringing those things together but actually most people are, are taking super normal returns doing that work and you know, people think, oh, I've got a great deal. Aren't you always going to get con artists anyway? They're always going to be there, whatever you do. I think there there isn't a single industry where there isn't a con artist. True, but if you if you are affected, if you're if you're given a model where as a community you're given agency to say and, and, a, and a structure to come together as a thousand households, effectively commission the local authority and and associated advisors to act as a middleman for you to co-design with you what you're going to have for your community and then go and procure at scale and hold to account the supply chain you're in a much much better position than the asymmetry of you know doris at number 83 speaking to a solar company well you also okay. want to try and uh, try and uh do it in a way where you have the opportunity maybe you build it in a way to to encourage the community to be involved in doing as much of the work as possible uh, absolutely and, um, totally, and that'll totally. help build trust too right um Local, but for local people, to paraphrase uh, League of Gentlemen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the, you know, it's a conversation I've had with a number of local authorities, particularly one in in London, where if you think about this, this model is is demand side, right? This is about stimulating demand and the funding to to match that demand to do retrofit. That obviously creates an immediate problem on the supply side because we haven't got a supply chain to to deliver this. So if you were as a local authority planning this out you'd need in parallel to be thinking about a materials program and a skills program. And if you plan that well, we're talking to one authority that has quite a lot of sort of industrial space. Okay, well, let's have a materials factory. Let's have a, a training academy. Let's let's put requirements on the procurement process for the supply chain that they must have a certain percentage of their workers under apprenticeships coming from the area that we're retrofitting. So you're bringing people into employment Mm. And then that's part of the narrative to the community. You know, we're going to create jobs for your for your kids. Even for a sales perspective, like if you've got um, uh, the charismatic, trusted people in a local uh, area who who know a lot of folk, a lot of the neighbours and so on, and who can win them over, win over the, yeah. diff, the more difficult neighbours and stuff as well, you know? Yeah. He's those evangelists, right? Yeah. yeah. To talk to talk it through. I mean, I think the other thing about the, the materials piece that doesn't get talked about in this space, gets talked a lot in new build, but not in retrofit so much, is the embodied carbon of the of the retrofit itself. And so it, there is this chicken and egg problem. There are all these kind of quite interesting little companies doing hemp-based uh, installation, or I mean, Duncan spoke about that on the, on the last one, or mycelium-based. And the problem is that they're often owner inventors who've come up with something quite cool mm. but they don't have the capability or the funds to scale up production so when you turn up and go okay we need you know 2000 homes worth of insulation it's like well I, I can do you too whereas actually you could you know if you you as a local authority you could run a program where you're effectively in incubating those businesses 
and giving them what they need to be able to scale up the production as you're creating the demand the two then go hand in hand i mean that's not that sounds really easy and simple to do it's it's going to be a nightmare and the supply chain is going to be a disaster for several years if we if we actually successfully get retrofit rates going up but I think there are things you could do to mitigate that. And that all all feeds into a community wealth building, economic regeneration part of this narrative that we don't really talk about enough. You know, what, what's the impact on the UK's productivity of people being ill from housing related conditions? You know, what what you know, the job creation that can be created has been talked about a lot. There's, there's a huge amount of value that could be driven out of doing this, but it it has to be done. I think one of the errors in almost every country I've looked at, is the demand stimulation ideas tend to be national programs mm. and they create diffuse national demand. And you're a gas fitter working in Lewisham. You don't care if someone in Hull wants to fit a, a heat pump. You need enough demand for heat pumps to be fitted in Lewisham to say, mm. do you know what, sod it, I'm going to go to the training college and do that course and learn how to do this because this is clearly the future. But that's got to be localized and consistent long-term demand to make that that transition. I got one for you as well now. Um, what about employers? Like if you think about a situation where a local employer, post-COVID, a lot of people are working from home now. Simon Jones, who we had on a while ago from Air Quality Matters, talked about way. the fact that there's obligations being on employers, even if you're working from home, to ensure that you've got good working conditions, right? What yeah. if you're living environment, your working environment, because the quality of the building is not great? What, where, where does that leave the employer, even potentially liability-wise? So, tapping up employers to, in a way that 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 employer, you know, that local businesses uh, put money into the community and stuff anyway, to um, to find ways to 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 build them into this, to to enable them to be contributing to this. Have you thought about that? That, that is a beautiful segue to something I said I would touch on later earlier, which is outcome buying. So if you think through the, the what are the outcomes of delivering this kind of scheme? So you take a small area, a ward, maybe a thousand homes, 2000, and you retrofit all of those or big, a large proportion of those properties. You maybe re-green the streets. You maybe uh, put in some active transport infrastructure like bike storage. You upgrade the community, you know, do all of that stuff, right? We've got a, a direct kind of financial model, which is a pay-as-you-say payment coming in to pay some of the debt that comes out of it. We've also got a whole bunch of other benefits that flow out of that in terms of the job creation, healthier community, economic stimulus, which is the business case for the public sector component of that funding. But if you think that through and think, well, who else benefits? Oh, do we have any free riders on this process? So you've just you've just um, fixed the employer responsibility for air quality for them, right? You have, if you think carefully about your building retrofit design, you could relatively easily build into it a component that manages the rainwater away from the water system and takes it into drainage systems. That's going to reduce the cost of the water company. You've improved the EPCs of all of those buildings. And a portion of those are going to be sitting in the mortgage books of mortgage lenders. Mortgage lenders have to improve the EPC, EPC profile of their mortgage books. You've just done that for them for free. If you stuck a load of batteries into that neighborhood, the transformer that feeds those ha houses has got flexibility built into it now. And maybe the upgrade cost for the DNO is pushed out by a few years. That's value for them. So there's all of these, all of these benefits. We did, I did some work. Um, 
a few months ago with Manchester, looking at an area on the south of Manchester called Withenshaw, um, which is a garden suburbs, semis, quite green and leafy, but very deprived, it's about two thirds social housing. And it's just to, it's just to the north of Manchester Airport. And the, the two biggest employers in that neighbourhood are the hospital over to the northeast, I think, and the airport down to the south, both of which are shift working organisations. So you have people with not huge income living in this neighbourhood who need to get somewhere at, you know, middle of the night to start a shift. There's no buses running. They can't really afford cars. They're having to have cars. So you've then got a you've got a transport problem. So for those employers, for the airport and for the hospital, building in a demand responsive transport solution is hugely valuable to them. So by thinking through all of those sort of uh, measures, you start thinking about biodiversity. There's a whole piece which Richard and Duncan spoke about around the carbon credit, which is another form of outcome buying. But if you work through all of those different outcomes and you engage with the organisations who stand to benefit, there is a whole other layer of capital that can come in for that. And, and that project with Manchester was was doing exactly that. It was we spoke to United Utilities, Electricity Northwest, the Environment Agency, the Airport, Transport for Greater Manchester, and the response from that that conversation was incredibly positive. It's like this is this is great. And if you put yourself in the shoes of someone like United Utilities, they would love to do suds in people's houses to take the rainwater away from their system. But it's not practical for them to start knocking on doors and doing that. But if there is a scheme that's already doing that engagement, to come in on the back of that and bring some capex to it um, and co-invest alongside actually starts to make quite a lot of sense. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There is who else, who else benefits and how do you bring them in? Um, whether that's providing upfront capital or providing some sort of outcome link payment for that but that it's it's why i think the the other piece we haven't really mentioned which is i think is critical around this whole thing is data and monitoring and measurement we need to baseline everything we can get our hands on and see how it changes you know what are the asthma related nhs referrals from the local gp and how do those move over time um what's the external internal air quality changes over time um, what's the humidity levels within houses? What you know, all of uh, as much data as you can capture, because that's going to make the business case either to make these other things which we know are benefits, but often don't have very much value in the investment process because they're intangible and they kind of accrue to everybody in a sort of you know nebulous way. If we can capture those with data and either use them uh, in an argument with government to put as to why government should be putting money into doing this other than just net zero or actually make them transactional outcomes where you know the mortgage provider pays over a certain amount of money for every epc band upgrade one thing i'd argue with that though is that it would be interesting to have the data yes absolutely really useful on many accounts but to a lot of people it's not going to be that important it's not because you come across you know a leaflet in your letterbox saying you know how amazing it is and look at all the proof points i think what we need is also a database but of stories you know real stories or or people who have been who have filmed on camera you know gene from across the road has said that this has been amazing that story of your kids who are no longer have got asthma who suddenly can play uh football again with their, their their friends and family those are things that are just as important as the data and i think we're in a society now where we're putting too much emphasis on data now not that it's a bad thing but it's just too much and i think we need to rebalance it with some more human stories as well 
I, I totally agree. I think, I mean, I think they do slightly different things. I think the data can help build components into the funding structure. So yeah, if you can measure things that you know commercial organizations or public sector organizations care about, and you can track those and prove you've delivered that outcome, then you can start to structure um, yes. outcome capital on it. I think the narrative though, goes back to what I said at the beginning, the most difficult problem here isn't the money, it's social license, it's getting people excited about doing this. Another reason why I think we need to start doing it because you need to generate those stories. And, and if if you think this, if you think this, you know, think about this from a, a Manchester City Council region. If we could, if we could retrofit a thousand homes in Withenshaw, and have a thousand homeowners or residents, let's say, and and small business, you know, this isn't this is uh, mixed use as well as mixed tenure, generating those stories about how my my home is so much warmer, my cough has gone away, you know, there's no mold anymore, all of those sort of things, then people talk so yes you can you, absolutely we should be capturing them and using them nationally as, as a as a narrative but you know there'll be a red line with those thousand homes there'll be the next house over the other side of the red line is going to talk to their neighbor and yes. that you know you you want to create is why two components i i suspect um this is just a hunch will be quite important in this and obviously it's going to depend by area but i think Okay, maybe it's too too sweeping a statement. But if you can show a positive visual transformation of a place that people like and buy into, which I think could come from either from some of the uh, EWI stuff where you're making tired-looking buildings look great, or from green infrastructure, or both. That's if you walk down the end of the road and you go, bloody hell, what's happened there? It's it's transformed. How do we get that in our street? You know, it's that kind of that's the wave we need to create. But we're gonna have to yeah. spend some money to do that. That is immensely impactful. Like it's the a different version of keeping up with the Joneses. It's not having the nicest car, but it's like an environmental impact that begins to set standards. I mean, we've heard these anecdotes from AC White. The feedback they get from the the residents of the the areas that they've developed, and I think Tanya's got stories about the little Irish lady. You always thanks her for giving her the nicest looking house on the street. I think that's it. Apologies if I misremembered, Tanya. And I think that's where the phased nature, because like I hadn't fully appreciated the phased, the significance of that until today, because every phase is a pilot for the next phase. It's incremental improvement. So you start on a micro level, then you move to a mid-scale level, and then it becomes a regional level. And then one region will feed the other. And if you can create that that central point, so if you're aggregating data that you gather from all these different nodes, then you can begin to present a national picture, ideally leading to an international picture. And it's not just raising capital, it's looking at creating a metric for benefit, which to your point, Alex, like the phasing part is driven by the anecdotes. So they are baked into this. Like it is an absolutely essential aspect of it. You cannot get away from that because the fucking thing don't work without it. Like it just doesn't happen. And taking the conversation away from climate, like you can reduce it. So as we discussed with Kieran Koff, like the motivator, it can be pettiness. Why have they got what I've not got? Why aren't my bills cheaper? Well, you didn't join in, you prick. That's why you will listen. Yeah. Um, if, like, you can, if, if you could move keeping up with the Joneses to keeping up with 
the next door street if you do a collective joneses exactly yeah that that starts to be really powerful i think and it you know it, it, there's a there's a component of this problem that is about there's a delivery scale that is hundreds maybe thousand homes but it it, it starts getting very complicated if you're trying to simultaneously retrofit twenty thousand properties or all of manchester well, that's not going to happen right <laughs> but so you need to break it down and have a there'll have to be a 10 15 year plan to retrofit manchester yeah and you'll work your way around but if you're doing that as part of a single program with a coherent funding structure around it you can be talking to the residents about well, we're going to do your 230 homes on this street next but you can be talking to the pension fund about an eight billion investment opportunity you know and it's going to be phased over time but that starts to make it you know you, you want to do the due diligence once as the investor and then just have a drip of investment into this as the as delivery happens um yeah. where's my grows. where's my next vehicle well we just finished in burnley and the lads in accrington are furious yeah <laughs> yeah and i don't you know I've, I've had a debate with with um uh with, with civil servants around this year what is the right scale for that funding vehicle does it sit at neighborhood level at city level at a combined authority level or a national level i don't know the answer to that we'll kind of work that one out as we go but it's not that's not today's problem but right now we just got to get some schemes up and running and you know the biggest money problem at the moment isn't capital we've got nothing to fund right there is that we're not we're not trying to raise 200 million to retrofit you know 4000 homes because we don't have a scheme to do that what we need is 1 2 3 million to put together a proper business case to be able to do it and that's so it's the technical assistance gap and the lack of funding in local government is is a really key problem and no one is really stepping up to do that i think innovate uk are actually doing a trying to do quite a good job of getting some money flowing in that but it's it's still it's not i guess going back to my point around it's not about so far, it hasn't been about stating a hypothesis and then trying to build a program to test that and iterate it. It's been throw money at the wall and see what sticks, which yeah, is a change I think we're going to need. Yeah. So if anyone is sitting there listening and has a few spare million pounds and a neighbourhood uh, to hand, uh, just give us a shout. We've got well, a solution it, right for you. Well, it, I mean, it does it it is it does mean that most of the work that I and you know there are lots of other organizations around this it's a collaborative thing right um lots of different consultancies and organizations and we, we partner with lots of lots of them in lots of projects but we do tend to work for the GMCAs the WMCAs the Bristols the London councils because they've got a bit of money and actually that's I mean there's there's you know there's an issue with that as a as a way of doing it but we don't need to fix all 408 local authorities at the same time we need to develop a model that works that can then be scaled to everybody so there is a there is a sort of need to concentrate some firepower and fix some stuff and and get a model working that then can be scaled afterwards. Mm. I was just going to add that um uh, I'll leave uh, whether you include this or not. I don't I don't know because we're over time. Uh, I think um I think there's an awful lot to be said as well for for building into a program like this actual uh, visits to buildings. I know. We have things like the passive house open doors, for instance, that happen a couple of times a year, uh, and they're very, very successful in this small way in in convincing people to uh, to to sign up for these things. Because you, 
you know, if you're actually in the environment, in your local community, experiencing it yourself and talking to the occupants of the building, it's a great way of kind of making that anecdote thing real. And I've seen it myself, how, how amazingly persuasive it can yeah. be to get people to sign up, you know? Uh, this is Jeff's, uh, what is it? The uh, the politicians giddily groping the contents of people's cupboards. Yeah, holding the the, 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 the jar of mayonnaise. Not, uh, oh, not, not able to, to, to... This, uh, this mayonnaise jar is already body temperature. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Irish politicians, Jesus. If you're commercially building a new development of flats, what, what's the first thing you do is you finish one as a show home to show people? Exactly. You think. And in, in the projects that we've been scoping with Manchester and West Mids, that's exactly what we've been saying. It's like, you know, the, the next output we need is a comprehensive business case, costed business case, alongside an engaged community who said, yes, we want to do it. That's what we need to get to. So we can then go to UKIB and legal in general and, you know, other pension funds and insurance companies do exist to get the funding. But part of getting there should be retrofitting a few homes. Because that's part of the engagement strategy will be actually going and finding the plucky, plucky neighbor who goes, yeah, OK, I'm up for being the first one. Let's 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 see what happens. What, what about uh, I love the idea of rental, like 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 a holiday letting style uh, retrofit. Um, where yeah, we spoke like, about that with Charlie Luxton on the podcast as well. Yeah, you know, the idea it's like being able to take a car for a road test, you know, building into these programs, the idea that you can, you know, you can stay in this house see what it's actually like for a weekend you know in the dead in the worst of the winter well, <laughs> one thing just to go along with what jeff has been saying but i've also wondered if is there any way of getting developers involved in this where you're building a block of flats right not far off from a uh, a community that is ripe for uh, retrofitting and the only way that they can actually build their block of flats if the first thing they have to do with that flats or those flats is to put people in so that their houses can be retrofitted and I'm, I'm sure it's fraught with loads of issues and i'm not trying to say it's the perfect idea but there's there's something that, that we need well. to start thinking about how do you incorporate all these different elements of this the, the built environments into this yeah absolutely i mean there, there's a there's an interesting kind of thread around developers in general because even if you're the most progressive developer in the world and you're building with timber and you're doing you're still going to have some residual embodies carbon. Mm -hmm. And so there's a there's a carbon offset and you know section 151, all that kind of stuff as that, that you could think about feeding into local retrofit from a funding perspective. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the both of the um the projects in Westminster and Manchester both involve quite high social housing density. And so a social housing provider will have a degree of voids at any one time. Um, so, a could you use that as a way of doing it? Could you could you you know could you retrofit the voids and, and sort of that's one way of moving around, or can you use the voids to move people into when you're retrofitting their home? I, I think there needs to be a lot of clever thinking about about that piece because it's a bit it's a bit like those those puzzles where you've got one gap and you've got moving yes. pieces around to get the right picture. But yeah, I, I love the idea of a retrofit holiday. You might want to to, to have a, a partnered uh, towns for this because, of course, does anybody want to go on holiday in their own town? <laughs> I don't know. That's not a bad idea. You know, a different yeah. perspective. I yeah, I I, th I think you know, seeing is believing. You know, um, mm. and you could even tap up uh, suppliers uh, to, to to help sponsor it or whatever. You know, um, provided the, the the quid pro quo being they have information about their materials and all that you know i'm getting into the nitty gritty kind of detail yeah. you get the point yeah right no more cans of worms i think yeah. we're done now well rufus it's been a pleasure as ever i'll uh i'll say goodbye 
unless there's anything we've missed or anything you want to plug well a thank you for for inviting me back um it's very kind of you you know as we're week six of a new organization so it's um it's early days we're growing rapidly should be five people by next month but you know in terms of plugging that business and what what we do who do we want to work with local authorities are ourselves who want to explore place-based demonstrators in in their in their place national or regional entities interested in a program of, of how to build that piece only, only uk for now rufus uh no no the i think we'll probably be predominantly uk for now but we are looking at a number of projects outside the uk there's no reason why unless you've got massively heavily subsidized energy prices in which case pay as you say falls over it can kind of work anywhere and actually got you know, some interesting conversations in australia for example and then you're starting to you know we start looking at different problems is it how much of it is about heating how much of it's about cooling you know what's what are the issues with with different types of typology in different places and then the final bit and this i guess is is a plug is in order to be in a position to do the most strategically important work for the country or, or the world if you want to be um it's not too uh, grandiose hi like, yeah too, that's the word i was looking for too grandiose about it often where the most interesting projects are is where people don't have the funding and so uh, super interested in talking to people interested in that kind of foundational funding model so we're set it we're set up as a not-for-profit so we you know, we can't extract any any value out of it other than salaries but uh looking looking for partner organizations who are interested in, on a case-by-case or programmatic basis to potentially fund some of this technical advisory where it's strategically relevant for for local authorities or ourselves cool all right so folk can find you you are there on linkedin rufus grantham uh we will have your uh, a link to your your page in the show notes livingplaces.earth that's the url that's right uh, it's a very young website. Um, it's very hastily thrown together by me, and, and at some point will be done professionally. <laughs> but the thinking's already been done in a lot of cases. It just needs to be deployed. That's why you are growing so rapidly. That's why it's not a surprise, to be perfectly frank. I, I'd qualify that slightly. I think the conceptual thinking has been done. There are lots and lots of wrinkles that need to be ironed out. So it's not just about deploying it. It's about deploying, iterating, redeploying, iterating, redeploying. We need to learn by doing, but yes, broadly. Yeah, that's every job. (laughs) It's always different. It's always the same. Like Jeff, he's been publishing magazines for 20 years and he goes through the same hell every issue. (laughs) Yeah, right, including right now, yeah. (laughs) Cool. All right, well, um, we'll let Jeff get off. I need a break from screens. Right. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, all the usual things, please rate the podcast. Five stars only because nothing else matters. I mean, if you don't want to, don't bother. That's fine as well. Get in touch with us about the consultancy. We have our own email addresses. So Jeff at zeroambitions.partners, Dan and Alex the same. Join the ACAN, join uh, the AECB, join the IGBC. Anything else, Jeff? Plus, yeah. <laughs> Oh, Pass Fast Plus, yeah. New issue, soon. Oh, oh, and share it. Share the podcast, please. Uh, If you get something out of it, you probably know someone else who will too, so share it with them, even if they don't ask for it. And if you can't be bothered doing any of that, uh, don't. Uh, That's fine too. All right, cheers. All right, see you, lads.
Thanks, bye. Thank you.